Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast. I'm Rosalind and I'm here today with Daphne and Alexandra and we're going to be chatting about Alexandra's upcoming talk on peer suicide that she'll be presenting at the UCL Institute of Mental Health annual virtual conference. We will be talking about suicide and self-harm so if discussions surrounding these topics cause any kind of distress you may wish to turn this podcast off and do something else. We also have information in the show notes about teams of mental health care professionals who work with people in severe distress. So I think we should start our conversation with um, a discussion of why you chose to speak about this topic. Well, this was a topic that I chose for my PhD when I first came to UCL back in 2007. And at that time, there was a really disturbing series of, of suicides that had occurred in an area of South Wales called Bridgend. And it's an area which is relatively socioeconomically deprived. So it was very unclear at the time whether the suicides that were being reported in the media were actually you know, representing an excess of suicides over what you would actually expect. And there are a few issues that really struck me about this. First of all, the media reported it in a very sensationalist way. And I know that Samaritans, and Daphne, you work at Samaritans on this topic, have done a lot of work in trying to collaborate with the media to explain to them why it can be really harmful to report suicide in a way that romanticises it or suggests that this is a, a solution to problems. But what was also speculated about in the press at the time was whether these people, and there were about 28 cases in all in terms of young people who died over this period of 2007 to 2008, And the speculation at the time was whether they knew each other and it wasn't clear whether they did know each other or whether they knew of each other through their peer networks or indeed whether they'd read about each other. And this was obviously a real concern to public health agencies at the time. And they looked at the number of suicides over that time and did an epidemiological analysis to see whether there was an excess. And they did later confirm that there was a suicide cluster, but it was much smaller than the 28 cases that were picked up in the press. But what this really struck me at a time when I was very interested in suicide and self-harm research, but wanted to focus on a topic that I could study feasibly for my PhD, I realised that we knew very little about what happens when someone close to you dies by suicide and how this affects your own attitudes to suicide and your own suicide risk. And having done my, my clinical training as a psychiatrist, I knew from every single psychiatric interview that I had been involved in that you always ask a patient, you know, is anyone in your family died by suicide? And and, assessing for a family history of suicide is a standard component of of a psychiatric assessment. But it also struck me that we tend to ask about this as part of the risk assessment. And I know there are issues around these assessments seeming quite tick box. But we often ask that question and never actually acknowledge how distressing it must have been at the time for someone's mother to have died by suicide or their brother. And it also struck me that perhaps we should be thinking about asking people whether they knew other people in their social networks who died by suicide and how this had affected the way they thought about suicide. So for my PhD, I conducted a a national survey and I asked people who'd experienced bereavement by suicide and people who'd experienced bereavement by other causes of mortality about their mental health, about any thoughts of suicide they'd had since the bereavement and about whether they'd made a suicide attempt since the bereavement. And we found that there was an elevated risk of suicide attempt in people who were bereaved by the suicide of a relative or a friend. 
And this really changed my clinical practice because now instead of just asking about a family history of suicide when I see a patient, I also ask about whether someone else in their network has died by suicide, whether it's a friend, a partner, an ex. And I always ask about the impact on them. So I might ask, you know, how old were you when your mother died? What impact did it have on you at the time? What were you up to? Were you studying for exams? Did it have an impact on your educational trajectory? Did it have an impact on your relationships at the time? And I find that when patients talk to me about their experiences of suicide loss, they describe unbearable distress following the death. And they also often describe a change in the way they think about suicide. I think it's super important to be asking those questions, not necessarily just the familial history, but also do they have other people in their life who have been impacted by this? Is there anything looking at the, like, the level of closeness that person needs to be in order for it to have an impact? I think that's a really important question and how distal that exposure is, is probably really important. We know that there are immediate influences on suicide and we know that suicide rates in the general population tend to increase after the widespread reporting of the death of a celebrity. And there's certainly evidence that this tends to be particularly a case in people of the same gender, of the same age or younger, and sometimes using the same method. But those are quite distal influences, aren't they? And are very much related to the way the media reports suicide. But I'm much more interested in that direct influence of somebody you know, somebody you really respect, maybe someone you really love who dies by suicide. And you begin to realise that it's changed the way you think about suicide. There's also evidence from the US in research conducted by my collaborator, Julie Serrell, to show that there is an association with how close you are to the person who died. However, there's also some quite contradictory evidence from some school studies in which the risk of suicide attempt seems to be greater if you weren't close to the person who died. And I wonder, and, and many authors have speculated this, whether being close to the person who died or the person who made the suicide attempt gives you quite a, a good awareness of how devastating the impacts can be on people around you. Whereas if you're slightly more distant from that person, you are perhaps less affected by it. But really, this hasn't been investigated properly. And this is something I'm quite interested in studying at the moment. I wonder if there's a relation between those people who are closer to that person kind of receiving more support and more attention from the others surrounding it, whereas those who are slightly more distal maybe get a little bit swept under? Yes, there's certainly some evidence from some qualitative work that I did with colleagues at UCL that if you are in the sort of highest level of the hierarchy, so you're perceived as the spouse of the person who died or the children of the person who died, you might be the focus of all the support, but people who are what we term the hidden bereaved may not get so much support. And if you think about all the people you know, who you work with, you study with, you know socially, through varying degrees of closeness, if one of them died by suicide, it could actually have extraordinary resonance for you and really affect you. And others may not be aware of that at all. So whilst all the, the offers of support are directed at the most obvious people, people at the periphery might feel quite neglected. And that's why it's really important that all of us, not just clinicians, are aware of the support sources available. So I'm patron of the Support After Suicide Partnership, which is a network of voluntary sector organisations that provide bereavement support. 
And I always direct people to their website because it shows where you can get local support. It doesn't matter whether you are in that inner circle or not. If you perceive a need for support, you can get it there. But of course, the support that we're describing here is very much for people who've been bereaved by suicide. And what we don't know so much about at the moment is what the psychological impact is of having someone close to you make a suicide attempt or someone close to you self-harm. What do we know about losing a parent at a very young age? What has the research told us about this? I think that loss of a parent in childhood is a really important exposure to understand because, of course, that can happen at a critical developmental stage. And if one of your parents dies by suicide, it will often leave another parent as the sole parent who's grieving and really struggling to cope with children who are also grieving. And there's some very compelling evidence from Scandinavian registries that risk of suicide varies greatly depending on the age at which someone lost a parent to suicide. So I think it's you know, clearly a very vulnerable group. And also very difficult as you progress through life, approaching the age at which that parent died by suicide. And that's something that I've been very interested in investigating because there's a concern that is sometimes expressed by people bereaved by suicide or who come from a family in which someone has made a suicide attempt, that this is somewhat inevitable or that there's some self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think this is a really important idea to challenge Because for these people, it's very difficult to imagine life after that age if they haven't had a parent who survived beyond that age. So I think these are particular issues that we need to investigate in in offspring who've lost a, a parent to suicide really at any age, but particularly in those early years. I was wondering if there were any kind of interventions that were designed to propagate positive social influences on self-harm. Well, that is exactly what I'm trying to work on at the moment. So as far as I'm aware, there isn't much out there. But as a result of a grant that I was awarded by the Institute of Mental Health with collaborators across the Institute, we did some research in which we showed that if you expose young people who have self-harmed in the past to simulations so these were written vignettes describing their peers self-harming in response to a life stressor we could see that their desire to self-harm increased in the very short term and we also found that when we presented them with a washout intervention that we designed that desire to self-harm was diminished and returned back to baseline So we found these findings very interesting because they showed to us that there was a strong influence of peer non-suicidal self-harm on the desire to self-harm of young people, but also that you could reverse this by using this washout intervention. And the washout we designed was effectively a written vignette describing another friend of theirs in their social circle who was also struggling with a life event but had found an app that they were using to cope with anxiety and they were describing how helpful this was for them. And just absorbing that information had an impact on these individuals participating in the research study thoughts about self-harming imminently. So we realised that there was potential here to develop this as an intervention. So my work at the moment is finding a way to target the peers of people who self-harm to try and harness their interest, not only in helping their friend who's self-harming, 
but also challenging any unhelpful thoughts they are having about using self-harm as a way to manage distress. Now, we know that many young people use non-suicidal self-harm as a way to manage distress, and they describe it sometimes as something which prevents them from actually attempting suicide. So what we're aiming to do is to try and design an intervention that is acceptable to our target audience. So the target audience is for kind of young people who have already self-harmed. Is there any kind of research looking at target audiences of people with no history of that? That's a really good point because in that research study we did restrict it to people who had a history of self-harm and so we can't generalise those findings to people who've never self-harmed before. And I think what's particularly interesting is what influences a person to start self-harming. Is it watching their friends self-harming to manage their distress, perhaps perceiving that to be an effective way for that person to manage distress and thinking that they might try it too. So what we do need to do is to repeat that research in a population of people who have never self-harmed before. So we have talked about peer suicide in the online environment and how this exposure may influence people, uh, people's behaviours. And I was wondering, knowing that current evidence suggests that the online environment kind of has benefits for people with suicidal feelings and for those who self-harm, and it may provide a sense of community and a sense of belongingness. I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about online interventions, online peer support. Well, Samaritans recently funded a team in my department, led by my colleague Sarah Rowe, to do a rapid review of the literature on peer support for self-harm. And we really enjoyed this project because it was really interesting to read the views of people who use online self-harm support and to see all the different benefits they described. And as you say, they perceived a real sense of community and they found it much more helpful than some of the professional support they'd been offered in the past. But they were also very aware of the potential harms for example, feeling triggered by other people talking about their self-harm. And the literature contained a number of suggestions for how systems might be built into that online support so that people could feel protected, so things like trigger warnings. And it really confirmed that there was a very important role for online peer support in the range of interventions to support people who self-harm. And recently, the British Journal of Psychiatry published some media guidelines for the reporting of self-harm in the media. And these are a really interesting complement to the media guidelines on reporting suicide that Samaritans developed many years ago and have been extremely helpful when working with journalists and thinking about how to disseminate research findings. And within these guidelines, the authors make the point that online sources of support and media accounts of self-harm are not always unhelpful. And they've given a series of suggestions for how journalists and, and anybody who publishes material in the media, whether social media or print media, to include examples of how people have overcome adversity, um, more helpful ways of managing distress that might not involve risks of scarring or other harms associated with self-harm. And I think this is a really important acknowledgement in those guidelines, which are also a really helpful resource for journalists and also for us as researchers in the way we report our research findings in relation to self-harm. Can I take the conversation to a different setting? 
So I was wondering whether you know of any policies in place to tackle this phenomenon um, at schools or like around younger age groups. So I know that this is a real public concern, the problem of self-harm in communities like schools or universities. And the public discourse seems to centre on this idea of contagion and the idea that self-harm might be contagious. Now, I don't feel this term is very helpful because it implies that there's some passive process and we all know from our understanding of infectious diseases that this doesn't really work with self-harm. It's, it's not something that you observe and then you catch it. It's something that you observe and you really process and you think about what that person has done, you think about the meaning of what they've done, and that's all interpreted in the context of your own mental health problems. So I, it's understandable that people are very concerned about what they perceive to be a rising prevalence of self-harm in young people, um, particularly at a point where they are together in close communities and schools. And I think this has to be handled really sensitively. I think those media guidelines on the reporting of self-harm are really helpful in thinking about how to approach this because they advise on avoiding use of unhelpful terms like describing an epidemic of self-harm and that is just too alarmist to be helpful and I think it's important to understand the reasons why young people are self-harming not to try and tell them not to do it and to think of collaborative ways in which we can work with young people to manage the risks and the distress that they're coping with. So there are some people listening to our podcast that they may have known someone who died by suicide, attempted suicide or self-harm. Should they be alarmed from your findings and what would you say to them? Well, I'm always aware that the findings of the research I'm conducting can be quite alarming and it doesn't feel very reassuring to disseminate research which shows that if you know someone who dies by suicide it might increase your risk if you know someone who self-harms it might make you more likely to self-harm but I suppose the reassurance I can provide is that there are plans to investigate this area more thoroughly to understand all these unanswered research questions and as a result of that to develop interventions that might reduce the risks to people who are in this vulnerable group I think if you've been bereaved by suicide, it's really important to know the resources that are available to you nationally. And I mentioned the Support After Suicide Partnership, which has a very good website. But it's it's less easy to know where to refer people who know someone who's self-harmed. I think that it's really important for everybody to challenge the idea of inevitability. So if somebody who you really identify with, whether it's a friend or a relative dies by suicide, it doesn't mean that this is a pathway for you to follow too. It's really important that you're able to see other ways of managing your problems, which of course is very, very difficult when people are depressed because their ability to problem solve becomes very impaired. But I think it's important for everybody to be aware of how hard this can be and to provide support to people who are exposed to suicide loss, suicide attempt or self-harm in this way. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Alexandra. Do you have any final comments or any suggestions as to why people should come to your talk at the conference? Well, I'm really pleased that 
Dee Knipe, who's from the University of Bristol, will be speaking at this conference on suicide research in lower middle income countries because she's going to identify loads of gaps in our understanding of suicide. I'll also be describing some gaps in our understanding of how people think about suicide when they become quite close to it and people around them. And I hope that this will encourage people who are interested in suicide research to focus on this area in their studies and bring insights from lots of different research disciplines to understand this really important public health problem. To hear Alexandra speak more about suicide and self-harm alongside a selection of equally incredible speakers, please come to the Institute of Mental Health's International Virtual Conference on the 15th of September. The conference will feature local experts and guest speakers from around the world, highlighting a wide range of mental health research, including lived experience research, precision psychiatry, basic neuroscience and more.